Welcome to podcasts recorded live at the Center for Spiritual Living in Portland, Oregon. Listen past the end of the podcast to find out more about our spiritual center and ways that you may collaborate with us. Happy Sunday, everyone. We're almost finished with Pam Grout's excellent book called E-Squared. Just a couple science experiments left. Yes, this month we're putting the science back in Science of Mind and actually doing some experiments together. Last week, you'll remember, we did the Dear Abby Principle. And the Dear Abby Principle is that the universe knows itself and that we can tap into that, that we can actually use our higher wisdom self, our connection to God, if you will, to find the answers to the questions that we have about life, to to plug into that eternal or celestial idea of wisdom, that when we listen to our heart as well as through our ears, uh, a world of information opens up to us. Today we're going to talk about the 101 Dalmatians principle. Yeah, I know. We really are. Uh, But I need to set it up a little bit with some more science first. Now, how many people are in the room today are familiar with the idea, at least a little bit, of quantum physics and how it differs from Newtonian physics? Okay, so so we have a good mix of people today. I'm glad for that. I do want to explain just a little bit about the idea of non-locality. So if you take, for instance, an atomic structure like a a nucleus and it's circling (laughs) electrons, believe it or not, if you separate two of the electrons from that atom through great differences, it's as though they're not separated. If you change the spin or the uh, polarity of one of the electrons, the other one, as though by magic, will change its polarity or spin. And this has been documented in any number of science experiments. And in fact, Albert Einstein was very unhappy with this because he said it illustrated what he called spooky interactions at a distance. It was something he could not explain how it worked. In fact, it seems to defy everything that we know about classic physics. Here are two separate elements, two two pieces of, of an atom separated by distance communicating with each other faster than light. Everything about it, Einstein says, it just shouldn't work. Yet there is something connecting these two pieces of an atomic structure that can communicate with themselves and actually alter each other over distances instantly. Pam Grout's book takes this a little further. She says, what if it's not just particles? What if there is a connection to the universe and a means of communication that some of us get glimpses of now and then? What if we also are able to affect one another, to communicate one another across time and space? Here's what she says in the book, and I think it's interesting because she brings up yet other science experiments that have been done. She says, we have even proven that non-locality works on bigger things. Take humans, for instance. In 1978, Dr. Jacobo Grinberg of the National Autonomous University uh, hooked two test subjects up to electroencephalographs in isolated rooms. The brainwave pattern produced by a series of strobe lights in one of the subject's eyes appeared identically on the other test subject's EEG, even though he was nowhere near the same flashes. And the experiment was repeated in uh, 
A decade later, uh, in London, by, uh, by another scientist, and in that one, they even isolated the people in Faraday cages. Now, again, for those of you not you know, 100% up on your science, I had to look that one up. That's the way that you can isolate someone even electromagnetically, so that there's, not only are they isolated like in a room separate, but there isn't even a way for electromagnetic spectrum, you know, like magnets or something to get from one room to another. So conclusively, they proved that two people were able to communicate in, in a way, right? Now this is their electroencephalograph, so it wasn't like they were talking from one one brain to another, and yet the message, the, uh, the, the brain waves show that there was a connection, much in the same way that those two electrons we talked about were connected in the earlier experiments that so befuddled Albert Einstein. Have you experienced things like this yourself? You see, I think that we probably do. And, and the way I want to explain this a little bit in more detail is to talk yet about another quantum physics idea, and that is the idea of entanglement. If you want to know why sometimes this seems to work and why it sometimes doesn't work as well or works with greater difficulty, it has to do with entanglement. Those two... Um, electrons that I was talking about in the first experiment came from the same atom. If you do it with electrons from different atoms, it doesn't do anything. There is an entanglement between the two of them of having been in that atomic structure together. It's almost like two people who know each other really well. You have a sense of what the other person's gonna do. Have you ever been able to maybe finish someone else's sentences? I think it's a fairly common thing, especially for young people, have you, and, and especially family members. Have you ever had the occasion that you were just so close to a, a niece or a nephew or, or a daughter or a sister or brother that you literally could finish each other's sentences? I think that's what's going on with the electrons. I think that there is something that entangles them, that's the, the fancy term for it, but something that creates a bond between them so that they actually know and expect what the other electron is gonna do, and that this carries through that idea of time and space, that they don't have to communicate in some usual way, that it is the, the existence of them being entangled in that way that does it. And so I think that the idea of an entanglement, if we want to apply it to humans, probably works similarly. Those people that we spend a lot of time with, those people who are part of our family, those people that we're spouses with, or, or have had occasion to work with over a long period of time, don't you often just sense what they're thinking and feeling? Don't you often, without any overt or outside communication, simply know when a loved one is having a bad day? Or when uh, someone that you care about or someone that you're intimate with um, is particularly or unusually happy? It's like you can just sense it. It's like there's something different about them that may not be on the outside, may not be communicated directly, and nonetheless, you know that it's true. I want to use an example of my own life. Um, gosh, my mom, I guess, has passed on now for, whoo, gosh, it's getting close to 10 years, but I still remember when she came home from the hospital for the last time. She'd been in the hospital an unusually long time, um, suffering uh, so somewhat severely, 
And uh, the doctors really had put her on hospice and said, well, the end is coming, probably in the next month or so, um, you know, she's not gonna be here. Well, my mom was reticent to go home. She, she was kind of like, she'd, well, she'd actually made some friends with the nurses. My mom is one of those kind of gregarious person. Here she is dying, right? And she's giving recipes to the orderlies and, and comparing notes about life to the other people. And in a way, she felt that her hospital room, and gosh, she'd been there for almost two months. Uh, and she kind of felt like this was her space. And, and I do understand that the hospital, you know, it's like she wasn't going to get any better uh, and she wasn't getting any worse there. They didn't feel any reason to have her still in the hospital. So, so we brought her home and, uh, and that was kind of an ordeal. It really was being with her in the ambulance and getting her situated. And you could, have you ever just seen in someone's eyes that they are exhausted and finished? Well, that was the look that I was getting, the, the act of moving her and the effort. And even though she was back in her room with her pictures on the wall and things like that, she looked just exhausted. And so, so, and my mom, being my mom, she was like, I'm fine now. Why don't you go get something to eat? <laughs> I just want to sleep. And so I went, to, uh, not very far, that was at Holiday Park Plaza at the Lloyd Center. I just went a few blocks away to Chipotle, and I'm sitting down and having a taco salad. And about halfway through, I started crying because I knew she'd made her passing. And, and I can't tell you how I knew. It's not like I heard her voice in my head, right? It wasn't a communication in the usual sense. It was more of just a sense that she had made her goodbye. I don't know how to describe it any better than that. Just a, a, a knowledge like after the fact, as though, as though someone had just told me, oh, your mother you know, made her farewell. That's the way I felt about it. And what was weird is I didn't even phone them to see if it was true. It was so clear in me that it was true that I just, you know, finished my lunch, went over, and of course there was someone in the hallway to meet me to say that yes, indeed, my mother had made her passing. Now, whether you call it entanglement like the physicists do, whether you call it love, whether you call it that level of familiarity that you just know when something else is going on in someone's life, I suppose it doesn't matter what we call it. Somehow, on some level of existence beyond which a, a Faraday cage can, can help us understand or scientific experiments can, can perhaps easily prove that level of communication, that level of connection exists for us. Now, the degree to which we're entangled or, or intuitive around certain people maybe enhance, enhances it, but it probably exists for all people in a way. Probably all of us have this ability both to be known and to know what's going on in the lives of other people. In fact, I, I would like to make a suggestion that probably a lot of our uh, intuitive sensing about people is based on this. Have you ever known someone that you just wanted to be around because they're, they're gregarious or, or fun or particularly happy in it? And, and you almost sometimes can sense that the instant you meet them. You don't even have to talk to them very much. You just, you just feel like, this is someone I'd like to be around. My theory is it's because they're kind of broadcasting on that wavelength, if you know what I mean, that their, their thoughts are happy thoughts, that their gregarious nature that you may not have even keyed into yet is still at work in their mind. It's like they're, they're broadcasting 
broadcasting in a way, 24 hours a day and seven days a week, and we pick up on it. Likewise, you've probably met people that just the instant you met them, you kind of felt like they were a bit under a cloud, that there was a, a something just not quite right or not, and, and you didn't you kind of step back a little bit? Like, well, I think I need to get to know this person a little longer before I want to just sign up for being their friend or being around them because there's something just there's something going on here. I think all of this is this effect. Pam Grout calls it the 101 Dalmatians effect and so I want to explain why she calls it that. It's a great part of the book. Uh, before we get there though I've managed to find a joke about Dalmatians. You might say where do you find but yes even a joke about Dalmatians. So a kindergarten teacher was taking a group of children on a field trip one day and a fire truck zoomed past them sitting in the front seat of the fire truck a Dalmatian. Well, the children started to talk about the dog's firefighting duties. One little boy said, the firemen use him to keep the crowds back. No, a little girl said, he's just for good luck. He doesn't really do anything. But a third child brought the argument to a close. The firemen, she said firmly, use the dog to find the fire hydrants. <laughs> All right, so, so case closed. <laughs> All right, 101 Dalmatians. Has everyone seen the movie? See, I'm sure that there's some of you that have, but a great portion of you have not. So guess what? You're going to get a live reenactment today, as only, sadly, I can probably do. So 101 Dalmatians, the, the plot is... Cruella DeVille, and do I even need to say anything beyond her name? All right. Cruella DeVille has decided that she wants a fine fur coat, all spotted. And chillingly, for a children's story, she kidnaps puppies with the intent of skinning them to make her coat. I know. It's like, you know, Disney in the 50s, no holds barred. <laughs> So the, the lead characters are the parents, two dogs, the parents of a litter of Dalmatian puppies that have been stolen. And the main plot mechanism is what is called the twilight barking. Now I looked this up in the original children's story because the movie, although it unfolds it, sort of doesn't explain it very well. What is this twilight barking? And so I went back to the actual children's story that's still published today in England and, and read it, and the idea is, have you ever noticed that dogs bark for a variety of, of reasons, that uh, casually, right? If you walk into a dog's yard that's their yard and you don't belong, you'll get some barking. If uh, something happens to a dog, you may get some barking. The theory of twilight barking, though, have you ever noticed that at twilight, sometimes dogs just bark? It's for no particular reason. And sometimes they'll even do a kind of a special barking that halfway sounds like they're baying or, or making a noise that's like their, their soul being uplifted. And the, the author of this children's book says, this is the dogs experiencing their connection with all other dogs. And of course, the plot element anyway in 101 Dalmatians is they're out for a walk at twilight and the two parents of the missing puppies do the twilight 
barking around, we've lost our puppies, help us. We've lost our puppies, help us. And uh, a mile away, another dog hears that and takes up the twilight barking and passes it on. And gosh, in the movie, in about 15 seconds, England is completely covered. Every dog in England knows that the puppies are missing. And surprisingly enough, one of the dogs where the puppies are being held raises the alarm back again. And so they locate the puppies. And, and of course, the story has a, a happy ending. Everyone is reunited. I would like to propose that we do twilight barking. I would like to propose that whether we think about it or not, our thoughts, our experience, our um, ideas of life, our... our um, emotional constructs that are working in us are always being radioed out there for other human beings to hear. You could think of it as that radio station that's going 365 days a year and 24 hours a day. And if you're the, the DJ of that radio station, what are the tunes that you're playing? Are you singing a, a radio station that's full of love songs? Or is it rhythm and blues? Do you know what I mean? What is playing on your mind? What is your consciousness telegraphing out to the world? It's a big question that I have because I think it reflects a couple different things. First of all, whether you're actually really speaking or not, I think we're constantly telling other people what we're like and they're reacting to that. And whether we're left alone, whether we're befriended, whether we're uh, shied away from, or whether people flock to us, I think are based not only on our spoken word and our deeds, but also those thoughts that we're telegraphing out there. I think that our very consciousness either invites people in or tells people to keep their distance. It either says, I'm ready to be a friend, or it says, watch out for me. And I think those gut feelings that you get when you meet people that so often are right on target is because you're listening. You're, you're king and you're listening to that radio station. And so one of the things I want to ask us as, as a group, but more importantly, individually, are you playing the station that you want to be playing? Now, we all have times of upset. We all have times when we're angry. We all have times when we're sad. There's always some negativity that's uh, available to us. And I'm not saying we shouldn't feel our feelings. Of course we should. But have you known people that dwell in a feeling long beyond its expiration date? Right? Someone that no matter what's going on in their life is still playing a song of sadness from 10 years ago when they got fired from a job. Or, or someone that is just angry well beyond the things that actually made them angry. Someone that just, they walk into the room and you sense anger. You see, these are the ones that I worry about because whether they know it or not, they're doing that attraction and repulsion thing. They're setting themselves up to be treated based on emotions and beliefs and thoughts that may or may no longer really apply for to them. And so I would ask you, if you had to summarize your, your mental radio station, if you had to come up with a few call letters for it, or, or if the American Top 40 were to say, well, this station consistently plays ta-da, ta-da, what would it be? 
What would it be? Would it be love songs? Would it be self-empowerment songs? Would it be songs of tragedy? Um, although I secretly kind of enjoy country western music, uh, you know, would it be, oh my gosh, my horse has died and no one loves me? <laughs> so I ask you, first of all, if you're willing this week, take a look at what it is, that message that you're sending out into the universe, because it's being returned to you. It's being reflected onto you, and I hope it's what you want. So now, though, it's actually time to move into our science experiment uh, for this week. And uh, it's right out of the book. Uh, it harks back to the 101 Dalmatians. And here's your homework. So first of all, write down a start date and a start time. This is another one of those science experiments that we're going to take uh, 48 hours, so two full days. Next, choose a person to whom you wish to send a message. Now, now think about the idea of entanglement here for just a minute, though, okay? I mean, I know we could pick Tom Cruise in Hollywood to send a message to. You know, we could pick Cindy Crawford or whatever. But the chances are they're maybe not as entangled with you as other people that you know, other people that you love. So, so take that into account. If you want a pretty good chance at this working out in an interesting and fun way for you, it's probably better to pick someone that you know pretty well. So someone from work that you've worked with for a long time, a family member, a relative, uh, someone that you feel entangled with. And then the next thing, choose what action or response you're open to getting. And I would say, again, pick something that you think would be reasonable that this person might do. Let's not make it too hard on ourselves. And so I was kind of thinking, I still remember I hadn't dated Daniel for very too long. And in a very unexpected and sweet way, uh, he got me some of those really fancy chocolates from Moonstruck. <laughs> Have any of you tried the chocolates? I mean, they're pretty good, right? <laughs> Well, he has not done that since then. <laughs> a very sweet guy. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, I get uh, testimonies uh, of love from him all the time. But my science experiment is that I'm willing to accept another box of Moonstruck chocolates. <laughs> so just so you know, that's my science experiment. Part three of it now is up to me. I'm going to make sure the universe uses the 101 Dalmatians principle to figure out how to do it. I don't need to know how to do it, but I do have a job here. My job is over the next 48 hours, somewhat often, to visualize Daniel and those chocolates being presented to me. Okay? So, so I'm going to feel the chocolates. I'm going to sense what they taste like. I'm going to see his uh, kind of giddy smile like, look, I thought of giving these to you, right? That, that kind of sweetness look on his face. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feel the energy of him saying, I have something special for you or whatever it is. I'm going to just own that. I'm going to feel that. I'm going to try to visualize it in my mind a few times over the next couple days during this test period. Okay, and then the end of the experiment is, 48 hours later, what were your results? Couldn't be easier. So I'll be check, uh, expecting a little feedback next week. Do these experiments always work out? Of course they don't. But I gotta tell you, it's been, we're, we're up to number eight. This is experiment number eight. And six out of eight have worked for me 
in the most dramatic and unescapable ways. There have only been a couple that have not worked for me. So give it a try. I think we're going to have some fun. Uh, before service next week, uh, just you know, grab me by the shoulder or say, hey, Larry, here's the results. And if we have time, we might share some of them. <laughs> so uh, I think it's time to pray. Let's just do our prayer and close out our, our sermon here. There is one power, one presence, one life, and one goodness. I know that this power and presence, and, and whether you call it God, or whether you call it uh, um, the divine feminine, whether you call it that which binds us together, doesn't matter. What I recognize in it, though, is that we're all part of it. And of course we're connected. It's as though the, the intimacy of all things is right here. I, too, am part of God. And as it is true for me, it is true for each person in this room. Each person here as part of God, of course, infinitely connected and intimately connected. Each one of us able to share our thoughts, our consciousness, our ideas with each other effortlessly and easily. And so for this week, I claim for each person in this room, perhaps a willingness to open our minds and our hearts to begin hearing conversations beyond what is provided by our, our ears. Perhaps a willingness to, to sense this twilight barking working in our own lives and to be ever more careful about what we're putting out through our own consciousness. Is it love? Is it light? Is it joy? So each one of us have that responsibility both to, to be what it is we wish to see in the world and also to open our hearts to receive more information. And so I'm simply grateful in advance for the results of these science experiments, grateful for the, the heart and the hands of God being in this room as it takes the form of these beautiful people. And so in gratitude, I let it be. And together we say, and so it is. So glad you could be here today. Thank you for being here today. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you happen to be in the Portland, Oregon area, we'd love to have you visit in person. The Portland Center for Spiritual Living is located at 6211 Northeast Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. We have inspirational services at 9 and 11 a.m. every Sunday. Our mission is to open hearts, ignite minds, and to make a difference. If you'd like to support our center and its podcasts, you can donate online at www.pcsl.us slash donate. Our website is also the place to learn more about what's going on at the center or to contact us. Allow us to become part of your extended community. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, you are most welcome at the Center for Spiritual Living.